Welcome, film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to today's episode of the Cinema Pathway Podcast. The 1996 film Jerry Maguire gave us some often repeated great quotable moments. For the romantics out there, there's the you complete me. Uh, Of course, there's show me the money. There's also one line that the film's antagonist, Bob Sugar, says that is very important and relevant to to our industry. That line is, uh, it's not show friends, it's show business. While this mentality differs at different levels when it comes to filmmaking, at its core, it it is a business. Uh, We are creating a product, whether it be a film, a piece of art, a commercial, or other content. And as such, we do want to be able to to monetize it. Uh, Of course, the stakes get higher on larger productions and higher budgets. I'm very excited to have today's guest on our show. Uh, As an entertainment lawyer, she spent years working at Top Hollywood, California, Uh, studios as legal counsel to actors, producers, and other artists uh, advising them on business of entertainment. I am very excited to welcome Sophia Stanley to the show. Sophia, welcome. Thank you so much. You had me at that movie reference. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Sophia, entertainment lawyer, Hollywood, studios, talent. Those are all things I think people dream about, read about, and know what's kind of presented to the public, but very few people get to see what happens behind the curtains. Uh, You happen to be one of them. Uh, But before we get to that, tell us what led you to start off college and law school in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., my old stomping grounds um, as well, and then your pathway to Hollywood. So I would arguably say, um, similar to a lot of lawyers, I came out of the womb talking. I just talked about everything. My parents are Jamaican, and I was born in London, England, and we emigrated here when I was two years old. And so one of the first, um, I guess, representations of American media was Sesame Street. And so as a two-year-old, I used to watch Sesame Street all the time and specifically Oscar the Grouch, right? Like everyone's like, you know, why is he so grouchy? And I was like, he lives in a trash can. Like he actually is arguably rather pleasant for the fact of his living conditions. And so that's the type of little kid I was. Like I was always advocating on behalf of others, you know, even as it relates to Oscar the Grouch. Um, I always had a different perspective and I was really fortunate that I grew up in a household that didn't believe in the concept that children should be seen and not heard. Um, My mom is a professor. My dad was a psychologist. And so they really encouraged me to speak my mind. And so I think it was almost natural for me to want to go into politics. As I got older, um, continue to advocate for people, um, specifically people who arguably didn't have the freedom to have the voice that I think I've always had. And so, you know, D.C. was kind of the way to go. I also used to uh, really want to be the president of the United States of America. But again, like I just mentioned, I was born in London, not here in the U.S. Um, And so I thought, you know, let me go into politics. Um, I thought I was going to be a lobbyist. And so I was, you know, I went to undergrad, I went to law school. 
school and I really thought I was going to be a lobbyist and or a civil rights attorney. Um, And I think it was probably my first year of law school. Two things happened almost at the same time, one of which was um, I started to see news articles about the NAACP talking specifically about Hollywood and the narrative that they were having or the conversation that was being had was the lack of representation Um, and not only the lack of representation in terms of of black actors, but also black crew. Um, And then the secondary layer was that if, in fact, you saw black people on screen, Normally, the characters were flat. They were negative. They were very stereotypical and they did not have have the breadth of a full character development um, similar to white. They were caricatures, not characters. Well said, Howard. Exactly. Um, And so between that and I started to really think even in terms of how I consume content and I was definitely a latchkey kid and, and consumed a lot of content. And I think that so much of who. Um, I was was arguably off of the one or two positive representations. So, you know, part of the reason that I thought I could even be a lawyer was because of Claire Huxtable on The Cosby Show. Um, And again, it was those types of, you know, one or two representations. And so I started to think to myself, how would I be more effective? Would I be more effective potentially going into criminal justice or would I be more effective being able to either change or help direct how it is that black people are perceived on screen? Um, I think everyone, you know, wants to potentially be uh, Denzel Washington, but I think very few people think I want to be Denzel's agent. And so I was really wanted to be part of that behind the scenes, um, ensuring that specifically black people, but really all marginalized individuals were really properly represented on screen. Um, and then I think also, you know, I grew up in a household of artists, even though my parents weren't artists, we always had, you know, artists, whether or not they were musicians or actors or painters. Uh, that was our house. That was like the meeting ground for those individuals. And there was a narrative that I kept hearing, you know, that in order to to be true to your art, you had to be starving. Right. And I was like, that just doesn't make sense. Again, like, how are you supposed to create on a high level if you're worried about how you're going to eat? And so I think that was also extremely important to me to start to understand the business end, right? So the creative I've always loved and consumed, um, but it was really understanding the business element and then hope and then hopefully educate other people. And ideally in a way that I think was less intimidating than people I think think of when they think of law, right? I think there, there's a, unfortunately the relationship is not symbiotic. It's normally adversarial. It's not collaborative. And so, you know, the, the genesis was me really loving creativity, loving that space and and wanting to make sure that from a visual perspective, that again, they were character, characters and not caricatures. And then that those individuals who were engaged in the business understood the business. And it's interesting, you mentioned Claire Huxtable as a lawyer's inspiration. And I don't think they ever showed her in a courtroom or or at work as a lawyer. I grew up LA Law, so uh, Blair Underwood. I've also you know been watching Law and Order forever. And um, as I think back, you know it it you know the representation. Yeah, like you don't you don't all you don't see it how it is. Uh, and there's been you know a lot of talk over the years. I think the Oscars just came out with new criteria, which we could talk about in a bit. You know, want to get back? So you finished law school. 
you got this bright future ahead of you, but you don't know where. <laughs> it's so funny. I, now that I think about it, I, I graduated almost 20 years ago. And to think back, I was so naive. You know, I thought to myself, I was like, I'm smart. You know, I'm smart. I'm a fast talker. Um, it's also ironically, I think the same reason I wanted to go into politics. I think politics is, you know, people who are fast talkers are, are drawn to politics. And um, I won't on the podcast, but I've been known to curse a lot. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, when I made the pivot and when I decided, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to Hollywood. Hollywood West, just to be specific. Um, I, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to Hollywood, California. I made the decision, you know, definitively that my third year of law school. So then I had to pivot and and I decided, okay, I'm going to take the California bar. Uh, took the California bar, passed my first time. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I just, I moved out. I moved my car. I moved my stuff. I found a place to live. And I thought, you know, again, I thought I'm smart. I'm somewhat charming. It's going to be easy. It was not. Um, it was such a culture shock in terms of, first of all, moving from D.C. to California, D.C. to Los Angeles in particular. And even though I thought I was going to be the one to educate people on the business of entertainment, I realized I knew nothing about the business of entertainment. And and by that, I mean the socio-political element of it. That's not your fault. Most lawyers who come out of law school in D.C. think they know everything. <laughs> so that's just that's just par for the course. I, I mean, I, I lived in DC for 13 years. Uh, I worked in government at my agency. I could probably think of half a dozen people who had law degrees, had passed bars, but just couldn't find work as a lawyer for whatever reason. So they did other stuff. And uh, I keep a, a meme on my phone. It's a, it's from Star Wars when Luke and Obi-Wan are looking down on Mos Eisley. And uh, you know Obi-Wan says, you'll never find a more wretched place of scum and villainy. Well, in this one, they're looking down on Washington, D.C. Love to all my friends up there that are still working and in and out of this. Yeah, it's a toxic, interesting place. And this is the irony is I think your analogy is spot on. But what I realize is I'm actually now in hindsight, I'm glad that I quote unquote cut my teeth in D.C. because there's also a politics of entertainment. And and so I'm going to share a specific example. So I remember two things in particular happened. I was at um, a friend of mine had invited me to an event and the friend was there, but they got me on the list. And it was my first kind of like big, you know, Hollywood type event. And specifically, Tracy Ellis Ross was there. Tracy Ellis Ross is also one of my idols from a, her character, Joan Clayton, also was a lawyer. Um, but also to just as how she, I think, moves through the world with her art so kind of authentically. And so imagine like meeting your idol. And she was beyond nice, told me to sit down, you know, offered me a drink. I was such a novice. I kind of paused. She was like, uh, girl, they're free. Right. Like, you know what I mean? She was just absolutely beautiful and amazing. And so as we're talking, you know, she's like, oh, what brought you out here? I said, oh, you know, I'm trying to get in the business. And at the time, and I wish I remember the name of the producer. So she said to me, oh, such and such, insert name, is looking for an assistant. Literally, I can get your email address. I'll put in a good word for you. Like, you're so smart, so forth and so on. And now in hindsight, I realize not only how naive I was, but how prideful I was that in my mind, I was like, I went to law school. I went to law school. I passed the bar. You know, now probably I'm in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. But at the time, it was $100,000, right? And so I thought to myself, you want me to be someone's assistant? And the reason I say that now, 20 years into the industry, is that I didn't understand what being an assistant in Hollywood meant. Being an assistant is arguably one of the most integral ways to learn the business. That's the first part. The second part is, is that assistants are often the gatekeepers. So they 
often hold the most power, even though from a presumed hierarchical perspective, they look like they're on the bottom of the food chain. It is Nothing could be further from the truth. But because, again, I didn't understand that underlying business of the business, I think I was a little offended. And so I think I probably took the information. I know I never emailed and and kind of just threw it out. Um, And so that was a huge learning curve, you know, as I progressed and and kind of learned the business. Similarly, I think it was about a year later, um, I was like, well, just and this is why your Jerry Maguire reference was amazing, because I literally was like, well, I'm Jerry Maguire. Like, literally, like, that's me. Like, I'm fast talking. There was a little bit of Bob that I used to be, how who Jerry used to be, right? There's a part of that of my personality, but I I try to lean towards good, not evil. I was like, I'm going to be an agent. And so again, talked to a bunch of people and they were like, okay, cool. You're going to have to start in the mailroom. Again, I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, you mean like, I'm actually going to like deliver mail? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and you want me to make how much money? Again, I was a novice. Similarly, in uh, Hollywood in particular, for the most part, most agents, literally, regardless of whether or not you have a JD or an MBA, and I would say that most agents have one of those two things, if not two, both, you start off in the mailroom. And again, the reason that you start off in the mailroom is because, again, you understand the business. And it sounds counterintuitive, but who you're delivering mail to, as you're delivering, you get to know the people, right? You also arguably, and I'm going to share because I'm no longer in in that space, Um it's also because you're opening the mail, you're scanning agreements, so forth and so on. You obviously, as you're scanning agreements, can read the ag- agreements, right? And so much of Hollywood is learning how deals are structured, right? And I'm going to say it a slightly different way. It's learning how relationships are structured because that's really what a deal is, right? It's saying what I expect from you and what you expect from me. And as a novice, that is the most important information because now you have lexicon to talk to other people, right? And potentially really get in the game. Is that still, I guess, the process if somebody was to go out to there today to work in the mail room or, I mean, well, yes. Or is it the email room now no, or something? That's a, well, <laughs> no, something? that's, a, you know what, actually, Howard, that is an excellent question. I would presume yes, but I'm actually going to add a couple other layers to this. I would say yes, if you're not connected. Right. So if you're connected, you can possibly immediately go on someone's desk and being on someone's desk. So really what it works is you start off in the mailroom, then you're an assistant to an agent, meaning you're on someone's desk. And then arguably, ideally, that person will train you. You kind of become like an apprentice agent and then you become an agent. That's kind of the the steps in a very um, short version. I would say, yeah, if you're connected, you can get on someone's desk right away, right? So if I arguably had gone that route and be, had become an agent and, you know, let's say I have a niece or a nephew, I could say, okay, I want them to be on my desk. The reason I say that is, is that I also think it's done on purpose because very few people have the means to either go to law school or get an MBA Go to Hollywood, California, which is arguably one of the the most expensive cities, at least top five, and work in the mailroom. And I still think they make less than $30,000, right? And so the reason I say that is it's almost like, I'm not saying it's a hazing, but again, only if you're connected or you have a, um, yeah, if you're connected or you have the resources, I think, are you able to to navigate it, it, it's slightly hazing, if that answers your question. It's interesting because you talk about 20 years ago, having to learn the business, obviously, you know, before the internet exploded, the uh, the wealth of information that's out there. Is it maybe not probable, but theoretically, could a motivated law school graduate 
or someone with an MBA, go out there and say, you know what? All the big actors have representation. I'm going to go start hitting up indie films and small pictures and just try to sign people and be an agent. A hundred percent. And so I don't I don't think this was this person's path. I think actually Charles King went through and was an agent at a, at a top agency, um, one of the top three. But Charles King at Macro, if anyone is listening, I, I strongly recommend checking out Macro and Charles King and his story. He's just absolutely phenomenal. But the answer to that is a hundred percent. You definitely can. I think that only drawback that I could see is that oftentimes you you just don't have the same access to the resources. So so as you as the actor is independent or the producer is independent and they're struggling, you're struggling with them, right? And so I think that can create camaraderie, but it also just is sometimes an undue pressure of not having the system. Um, ironically, that in essence is kind of what I did and that's how I caught my teeth. And so what I really did at the beginning was I was like, let me just learn who's here, right? Like, let me make sure that I'm going to film festivals. Let me make sure that I'm going to open mics. Let me just meet the creatives. Let me initially just sit down and talk to them and see what they need, right? And beyond, I think one of the things that sometimes I think hurts creatives is having an impression or an idea when there is someone on the other side, when we say what we do, that you assume what that means. Right. When when my job is just to have a conversation. And so what I would do is I would just have a have conversations and figure out, like, what do you need? Right. And one of, I think, the beautiful things about being a lawyer, if you do it right. Right. I think of us as counsel. Right. We're of counsel. So my job is to counsel you. So that's regarding whatever you need. So if you need help finding work, then because I'm in these creative spaces, I'm more likely to have access to that information. If you need help. Even figuring out, does this character arc make sense? I'm also more likely to be able to help you with that because why? I've been reading tons and tons of scripts. I'm also a consumer of content. Um, if you need help actually reviewing a contract, I can also help you with that because that one's easy, right? But I say- Easier to you. Ooh, <laughs> a, a, excel, excellent point. Excellent point. Easier, easier to me. But yes, 100%, there is no arguable barrier to entry to someone uh, just going out and being an agent with the quick exception, the lawyer in me has to, to chime in. Other than the fact that I think in, in New York and California, agents have to be licensed. Right. right. So that, so yes. So, and, and that's arguably why you, you find more people in management being independent more so than agents being independent. It's because of that licensing factor. The licensing factor adds a layer of protection, which we may or may not get into, but that's kind of why it's a little bit different. So so again, I'd say the trifecta in, in Hollywood, California is an attorney, an agent, and a manager. We all arguably do very, very similar things. Uh, the difference is that as an attorney, I am, uh, I'm, I'm held to certain standards by the actual state bar. So if I do things wrong, regardless, so you, you, Howard, could be like, oh, Sophie, it's cool. And it's like, no, 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 no. There are ethical standards that I need to adhere to. And if not, I could lose my license. Agents have a similar um, rule book. Managers, not so much. Maybe another time we'll kind of d dig into the fact that there's like a manager loophole too, but mm -hmm. I won't go off down in the rabbit hole too much. There's there's always a loophole for for anything. But again, first we have a really, really good conversation so we don't need loopholes. Um, and, and that's kind of, I always think, where people should start. It's great. We're off and running. Yo, speaking of great conversations, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Cinevideotech and Paradoxical Films are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story Master Training Workshops. You will learn how to work with actual 16mm and 35mm film and film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. In addition, the workshop will teach you what it takes to work on set as a first or second assistant camera, the fundamentals of lighting, and the pathway to becoming a director of photography. 
Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to sign up. Hurry as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. And we are back. Today, I am joined by Sophia Stanley. Hollywood has always revolved around contracts. Uh, the earliest days where studios basically owned talent, they were beholden to do whatever the studios wanted. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're learning now how horrible the talent... I mean, I think I think it was known in Hollywood for a long time how horrible the how, the talent was treated, but I was, you know, now uh, learning more about Then along came you know, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford... Douglas Fairbanks, who said, you know what? Screw that system. They started United Artists, which gave actors more control over their own destinies. And over the last hundred plus years, contracts, agreements, and probably the most used word in Hollywood, deals, uh, are what makes that world go round. Can you talk about, as an entertainment lawyer, what is their role in that bigger ecosystem of Hollywood deals and what goes on there. So I'm going to start dramatic first and then kind of give actual context. So I would say that part of our job is just to be the Wizard of Oz. Like it's just to seem bigger than we are. Like it's just like we are attorneys. No, like it really is just that aspect, right? It's, it's that, you know, you have to appear that you carry a big stick. And I think that having an attorney helps you do that. Um, most people won't take you seriously if you have an attorney, if you don't have an attorney. So even just to even talk to anyone about, you know, getting your your script greenlit or being on anything, if you don't have an attorney, they think you're you're not really serious. That's the first part. I would say that, you know, to be a little bit more realistic, it's that to your point, Howard, everything revolves around the contract, right? If, if there isn't a piece of paper and there aren't signatures, we don't do anything. Um, I would say that most people, and this is something I hear all the time, they're like, Sophie, okay, it, it's going to take you two seconds. I just need a standard contract. And I was like, so what's a standard contract? They're like, well, well you know, you know, industry standard, just like, you know, what everyone else is getting. Um, and I think that that's kind of what most people say. And that's what most people want. I think I take a slightly different approach um, and, and tell me if this is not what you want to hear now. It's that I always say to someone, so cool, that other actor that you read about that got screwed, you want to get screwed too? Right? Because that's a standard contract, right? Like if you, like at the end of the day, we, I think are very aware that, that Hollywood contracts are not favorable to talent. So if you are telling me you want the standard Hollywood contract and you are talent, you are actually asking me to help you enter into a bad contract that is not favorable to you. So I, I would say that my job or the, the job of any good entertainment attorney is to ensure that someone has really thought about what it is that they want. Right. So what is it that they want or they expect from that specific project? But also to what do they want for their career? Right. Because at the end of the day, it's really it's a relationship. Right. So so let's I think use, you know, if you have a script. Right. If you write something, you know, and actually let me take it two ways. I think there's two different types of writers and you can have a hybrid. Right. You can have a writer who writes for the love of it. Right. Like they just they have stories that they feel need to be told. 
And then I think there are people who want to be, you know, you want to be like a big deal and you want your your name in light and you want to know that you're that type of writer or producer that when, when we see your name, that in of itself allows us to know that this is going to be amazing, but you kind of want to be a star, right? In either of those iterations, then you need to make sure that if you really want to be a star and have your name in lights and you want to make sure that you direct or you uh, um, uh, plan or strategize accordingly to think how would that happen, right? So there's certain things you would have to protect, like your name and likeness. You would have to ensure that you have a certain amount of um, edits that someone else can't go and edit something so that now it's crap and your name is on it, right? You want to make sure that you control the thing. Similarly, if it's something that's actually near and dear to your heart, you still obviously want to control it. Um, And you want to have autonomy over what your name is attached to. And so the reason I use that as an example is that that needs to make sure that it's in the actual contract itself. Right. So what a lot of people don't realize is um, I'm going to say something random. Let's say they're like, okay, cool. They promised me a pony. Right. For writing this. And I'm like, okay, cool. Is it in the contract? They're like, no, no. Well, it's just standard. No, no. Is the fact that when you're done with your first draft, you'll get a pony that needs to literally be written into the contract, because if it's not, you're not entitled to it. Right. If they said, oh, well, I'm going to make sure they're going to give me back end. And I say, okay, cool. Well, what percentage? I don't know. Just standard. No. Right. Like, and, and so I, I say that to say that a huge part of, of my job and, and, and personally, how to say this um, delicately, I think that very few people are privy to that level of care unless they're already on the top. Right. I, I think that people on the top have great attorneys. Right. I, I, I'm not going to pretend that they don't. Right. But I would say that people at the beginning and people in the middle, I think often don't have the resources to have really good attorneys and or they don't even know how to find someone who could actually be on their price point, right? Who's absolutely phenomenal. But again, because I think there's this weird intimidation factor whenever people think about lawyers, I think they're scared. It's interesting. I went to a boarding school, prep school in Connecticut, and there's been a number of professional athletes that have come from the school and people say, you know, how come they're not donating tons of money, you know, tons of money? And then, yeah, you know, they make money, then they, you know, pay 10% 10% to their agent, this percent to their manager, this percent to their lawyer. You know, there was one guy um, who went to the NBA right out of high school. And I mean, you know, he had a money manager. Like he wasn't allowed to, he couldn't buy a cell phone without getting permission um, from that. So when you hear that this person, this talent is getting paid this money, a lot of that, not not only that, California is, you know, they're taking half right away in taxes. And then there's a lot of people to pay off. And because the work also, you know, they may have gotten that money, but that shoe was only three months and that may have to last them for a while. A hundred percent. And I think also too, I think it, 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 it's actually a really good segue because I think that to people who aren't in the business, they don't even understand, for instance, why there's a writer's strike right now. Right. And I think the reason being is I think that to, to people who aren't in the business, when they hear how much writers get paid, they're like, oh, my God, that's a lot of money. You, you have to think about it in context. Right. right. In context, of the fact that a writer could write a script and that could literally be the only thing that they sell for years. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're literally living off of that f- right. for for a, for a long time. And I think also, too. To your point, it's like when you start to carve out all of the pieces, right? That's, I think, the first part. The second part also, too, is most people who work in the business, 
even as talent, you have never heard of. I think we have a bad habit of looking at the business only from the perspective of the stars, right? And I think that we should never do that. That's actually why there are bad contracts, right? Because that's that's kind of our foundation. No, you should literally do it the exact opposite. You should, so much so that, and I'm going to pivot for a second. I remember, and again, I think I mentioned to you guys, I went to law school about 20 years ago. And when I went to a law school, I went to um, Washington College of Law in, a, in uh, Washington, D.C., which is affiliated with American University. And 20 years ago, they were trying to um, champion um, a concept or a new system or a new protocol called plain language contracts. And the theory behind that, right, is normally whenever we think about contracts, we think notwithstanding the foregoing and blah, 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 and the straw person, right? Like we have all of these words that 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 sound lawyery, right? But I think what that does is it intimidates people. Instead of literally if I say Howard is going to write a script and Sophie is going to pay him a thousand dollars, Howard is going to own all of the copyright. Sophie will have limited use to only read the script at coffee shops on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday of the third week in December. That's it. That's a contract. You just described, I was telling somebody recently, sorry, squirrel, about parking signs in DC. If you remember, it's like, you can only park here Monday, Wednesday, Thursday of even numbered months on odd number days while Mercury is in retrograde. And yeah, it's- But if you see a unicorn, then you can. If you see a donkey, then you can't. If you see that, like- I once asked a DC policeman, like, can I park here? He looked at the signs. He's like, I, I don't know. That parking's a whole different department. Right? And I think also too, to your point, it's that I think that also too, most actual work talent because they don't have access to a lawyer who is part of their team. And let me be very clear, right? They, they're they literally just getting an attorney to, to review the contract, but they're not viewing an attorney as part of their team. The attorney isn't able to help them understand, right? So, so much of what I do isn't simply just reviewing the contract and revising it. So much of it is literally, and this is like the hardest part because people think I'm wasting their time. And especially when I was, you know, on my early days, I never charged for this aspect. I like to go through contracts line by line by line to show someone that you do not have to be a lawyer to understand it, right? And that I actually need you to have full cognition because every single contract, let me actually let me back it up. The majority of contracts all have an, a clause in there that says one of two things. You have read and you understand. That is a lie. Most people are reading without any comprehension or understanding. That's the first part. But then they're slick. They also say, or you have had an attorney read it over, so forth and so on. I am not a fan of over-reliance on anyone, right? You, again, this is the business of entertainment. You are the CEO of your business. So you should have full understanding. I should be an asset, but you should never overly rely on what I think because again, if I don't care about you, right? I don't care about what you're creating. I may not ensure that that's in the contract even though you've hired me to do so. Does that make sense? Is it myth or fact that contracts are purposely written to not be understood. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And this is the thing is, and this is why one of my uh, favorite compliments if I'm out is if I, if people ask me what I do and I'm like, oh, you know, this and that. And they're like, no, no, no. Well, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm an attorney or I'm an entertainment attorney. Whenever they say, oh, that's weird. You don't seem like an attorney. That's like the ultimate compliment to me. Right. And the reason being, I think, because I hope that means I'm actually approachable. Right. It means that I'm not I'm not keeping that arm's length distance. And the reason I say that is I 
100% believe that contracts were written in a way because the legal profession, we were gatekeepers, right? We were a very elite set of people. Um, it's funny, I have a, a personal brand that I talk about, I'll talk about a little bit later. It's called Redefining Esquire, right? And it's this whole concept, right? You know, Sophia T. Stanley Esquire, right? And I love it. Like, don't get me wrong, I really do, right? But it is this concept, you know, the, the old English, you know, term and what that means in a night and so forth and so on. But again, it really was a very learned set of people. And it's kind of similar to without getting into religion, but, you know, the, the concept of, you know, why certain religious texts were only written in certain certain aspects of the Bible was only written in Latin, right? Even though it was originally in Aramaic, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Um, but again, that was done. Why? Because only learned individuals spoke Latin and could read Latin. So that was done on purpose. And I think that if you look at a lot of um, uh, legalese, it's Latin, right? Right ipsa loquitur means the thing speaks for itself, right? Like, why don't I just say the thing speaks for itself? But I'm going to say right ipsa loquitur because it sounds cool and it makes me sound smart, right? And so, yes, I definitely think it's done to ensure that lawyers have, have, have jobs, right? Because arguably... If you could understand your own agreement, right? Like if, if, if the two of you or the two of us could sit here and I pre- pretend I'm not a lawyer, could understand an agreement, then we could both write it, clearly understand it, right? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to yourself, oh, this doesn't make sense. And we could sign it and it would be valid. Did I just put myself out of a job? Not at all. <laughs> no. In fact, it's a good segue because I wanted to ask, can you break down what I call marine style? You know, what these big contracts are comprised of, in addition to just the dollar amounts. I, I know one yeah. one story, uh, The Thomas Crown Affair mm-hmm. is one of my favorite oh, movies same, of all time. Same. And in the the dance scene at the party, Pierce Brosnan is wearing a tuxedo, but he has his bow tie untied because at that time he was playing James Bond and in his contract, he could only wear a tuxedo as James Bond, like crazy stuff that is a gr- oh okay so it's because the james bond franchise i'm this is not 100 percent accurate but i'm going to just like let you guys in on how my brain works like off the clock so trademark is when uh you look at something and you associate it with something else right so again Piers brosnan right who played james bond in a suit with a bow tie you are going to assume you are watching james bond not Thomas Crown, right? And now you are going to associate all of the James Bondness to this movie, right? So there's, first of all, the Thomas Crown affair is potentially piggybacking off of the trademark and the goodwill of James Bond. That's the first part. The second part is, no, Thomas Crown affair is a great movie. Let's assume it wasn't, right? So if it wasn't, then it also could erode the James Bond brand, right? Because you expect a certain level of excellence right. regarding James Bond, right? Um, and and a certain finesse. So if if Thomas Crown Affair and and Pierce Brosnan had had the bow tie, and you're assuming it's James Bond, now it's eroded the James Bond brand, right? And so the reason I say that is someone was so smart to ensure that we there are certain individuals that we no longer see them as an actor. We see see them as a specific character, right? And so that's why, and I think there's a, I think there's a movie he was just in recently, and I think that he makes like a James Bond reference, right? Like it's just coming out now, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of not meet the parents, but it's something like about, right? And so 
those types of things are, are really important. So, so kind of to your point, Howard. So, one of the most important things that are that's always going to be in a contract um, is the issue, specifically if it's the issue of copyright. So, who owns the thing, right? So that's the first part. And I think specifically if we're talking about um, writers, one of the things that most studios will do is it's called a work for hire, right? So, actually, let me back up. One of the things I think people don't realize. Okay, so if I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna literally start to write a poem, the minute I write the poem copyright has vested. So the minute I've taken my idea and put it in tangible form, I have a copyright. Now, there's a difference between proving your copyright, right? Like proving that you wrote it, right? And then if in fact you, you know, um, fast forward, you're in litigation. For most times, if you're if you're litigating, now you actually have to have um, a record of it at the U.S. Copyright Office in order to litigate to prove damages, right? But they're two different things. So you already have the copyright, but if you're going to go into a, a lawsuit, the reason I mention it that way is when I write it, I have a copyright and I am the author. However, for the most part, if you are hired as a writer for a movie, most times large studios will basically have a clause in there. And this is, again, under the the auspices of copyright. It's called a work for hire agreement or clause. In that instance, as I'm writing, the movie studio is the author. Does that make sense? So even though it's my hand, it's because arguably I'm writing it on their behalf. So it's almost like I'm just their arm. And immediately upon writing it, they are the author and they have copyright. So you're basically a contract employee. And completely, right? The reason this is so important is, is and again, if anyone's ever seen these agreements, I um, um, implore you to go and look for it and do a search for work for hire. What they'll also do in that same clause, it will also say, for some reason, if it is not in fact a work for hire, you are now licensing, meaning you are giving it to us and we are now the author. The reason that they have to do that dual language is arguably at the essence of anything in Hollywood is the copyright. Right. Like the tangible asset, the the thing that you are protecting, that you make money from, that you own the right to distribute, the right to exploit, the right to send it from one place to the other. All of the things that you need, you know, basically for us to be able to see or hear the thing are vested in copyright. So I would say that the I'm not going to say the most important, but the most important clause or clauses all pertain to copyright, because as a creative that. That is the protection of your thing. Who owns it? Who owns it, right? Who owns it and who has the right to do a myriad of things. Um, Why I think that's also extremely important is copyright also imagine it as it's like a bundle of rights, right? So it's, it's like it's the best way to think of maybe is like a grapes, right? So you have a bunch of little grapes, right? So one of them is the right to um, duplicate. One of them is the right to distribute, right? There's different things. And the reason that's important is you can give away the whole thing or you can give away one grape or two grapes, right? Like you can piece it out. So oftentimes you can give someone the right to distribute, but you have not given away the ownership of the thing, right? And so do you see how all of that that nuance is important? Because if you somehow think you're giving away just distribution, but you actually gave them the entire bunch of grapes, now a year later when you're trying to basically make a sequel, of that first thing, you can't do it because you have given away the entire right to do anything with that thing. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? It Not does. really. Well, good. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for, it, it for indulging me. Um, 
I would say the other um, extremely important um, aspects are exclusivity. Because again, kind of going back to the fact that you're a contractor, right? So it's whether or not your services in any capacity are exclusive, right? And so I wish I had remembered the, the name of the actress um, uh, recently was sued um, because she, I think, I'm not, I can't remember if she backed out of a production or something happened, right? But again- it's, I think it was uh, Ava Green? Yes, thank the, you very the, much. With the text messages and- Exactly. Because again, it depends, like depending upon how a contract is written, they could exclusively, if I'm an actress, they could exclusively have my services for two years, regardless of whether or not production has started. So what that means is for the two years, regardless of whether or not production has started, I'm going to say it. They own me, right? For that two year period. Also, if there aren't clauses that say something to the effect of, okay, two years, as long as within two months of signing the, the contract, production starts, right? As long as within two years or within a year, uh, there is a date for release. Do you see where I'm going? Like there, there has to be benchmarks because otherwise you're just sitting there two years. And again, someone else, again, not in the industry will say, well, you're getting paid. Huh, this is a caveat. You're getting paid, but again, what if part of what your compensation was was back end, right? So meaning profit of of the movie and the movie hasn't actually been made yet. That's the first part. Second part is as a creative, part of your brand and your brand value is being out there. So if you're sitting for two years doing nothing simply because may, you know, your mortgage may have been paid for, you're now diminishing any potential return because you're you're not not out there in the zeitgeist, right? People aren't seeing you. So I would say exclusivity, obviously how much you're getting paid. <laughs> That's extremely important. Also to how you're credited, right? So so credit is extremely important. So again, especially depending, I'm trying to think, um, I don't happen not to know this, but um so granted this is TV, so it's a little bit different. No, no, it's not. So it's also I'm I'm just curious. I just don't know this off the top of my head is whether or not Queen Charlotte, that actress, or is it King George? Yeah. King George, who has top billing. Right. So and this is why I, I, I have full faith that Shonda Rhimes does things well. Shonda Rhimes is just a savvy, savvy, savvy businesswoman, as well as just a great writer of content. Um, but wouldn't it be ironic if it was called Queen Charlotte, but King George as an actor got top billing. And the reason I say that is because there's often sexism in terms of who gets top billing, right? So even things of that nature, right? So if I was, and I just can't remember her name, but if I was Queen Charlotte's attorney, I would ensure that she gets top billing, right? But you have to, again, specify that. Another thing um, is kind of thinking about friends. Uh, part of the reason they were so successful is um, when their contract negotiations were coming up, they banded together. So another thing is also options. So oftentimes, what what a lot of contracts have is um, it's not only like the length of time that you're bound by the contract. What studios want to do is they want to make sure that we have access to you for as long as we want to have access to you. And so what that means is we it's a it's called an option. So I have an option to extend your contract. Right. And normally they do it in such a sophisticated way that, yes, you can kind of like you know, within 30 days of the end of the term, you can write saying notice that you no longer want to move forward, so forth and so on. But again, they make that rather complicated because they want to they want to keep their option. The reason that that's important is, again, you need to know, like, how long are you on the hook for? So what Friends did is they they did something absolutely amazing when the first contract term was up. What they did and what happens is um, each option, it already presets the price. So let's say for the first three years, you got paid $20,000, right? For, no, let me make it less than that. $1,000 per episode, right? And back in the day, I think what, it was like 23 episodes was like a standard season. So let's say they're going to make $23,000, right? All of a sudden, three years later, Friends becomes an amazing huge hit, right? Like, I mean, like 
humongous and everyone else around them is getting rich, but they only made $23,000. Year four, the option now kicks in, right? And now they get a 5% bump, 5% bump off of $1,000. And so what they did is they banded together and they basically said, if we band together, they can't fire all of us. Because normally what Hollywood is known to do is they're like, okay, cool. You don't like your contract, right? You know, three years in, four years in, cool, you're gone. But there would have been virtually impossible for them to get rid of the entire cast of Friends, right? And so the fact that they banded together, they were able to rewrite their contract and renegotiate. And so one of the things that I mentioned for people to always put in is metrics, right? Because thing is, it's a win-win. So again, we can have an option for like a two-year term with an option for a year, another year, another year, another year, right? To hit seven. I'll talk maybe why seven is the important number. But what I normally would also do is, because again, sometimes when you're you're new, you don't have that much power to like, you can't do a bump from like, you know, a thousand dollars to then also like a 50% raise. That's just not going to happen, right? But what you can do is metrics, right? So for instance, if normal, let's say on cable is 5,000 views, right? But if this TV show or so forth and so on gets 20,000 or 20 million, then you get a bump right? Because arguably viewership is connected to revenue, right? So you're getting a piece of that revenue. To me, that's a win-win because if they say no, then it's like, okay, uh, presumably me as your actor, whomever, it was part of the success of this, right? Of now going beyond what we imagined. So yeah, so the term and then the option and then kind of metrics. Similarly, so I think especially in this world now, it's understanding also what's carved out. I mean, I'm going to use this as an example. It's like Johnny Depp, right? Like who knew Johnny Depp also had a band? I mean, whatever. Anyways, sorry. (laughs) That was a little shade. Um, But the reason I say that is, again, Hollywood wants to control everything, right? So if you are an actress and a singer and a painter, right? You may want to also carve out some of those other things because what happens if you are a painter and you go on a reality show and it's a painting competition? Does that fall under your acting contract? Or is that separate? Do you see where I'm going? Right. Because, again, this new world, it's a lot more. There's a lot more fluidity, I think, in terms of people's creativity. I think we no longer think of creatives as these monoliths. I think they're, they're way more dynamic than that. So being very, very specific on what it is that you're being hired to do and how much control they have over just that thing and not the totality of your career. Um, And that leads me. And the reason I was I mentioned Johnny Depp then and I'm not going to mention, you know, his ex-wife on purpose. Um, Also, too, and this is actually, I'm not a fan of this, um, morals clauses. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, And so what morals, morals clauses are, is it basically was the studios, and I'm saying this on purpose because it's, you know, most people, I think we only think of things from a studio context. Um, The studio, basically, it was their right to basically break the contract and not pay you because you did something, quote unquote, morally wrong. The reason I'm not a fan of morally wrong, I mean, yeah, the concept of morally wrong is that, again, normally it is outdated in its writing. Like whenever it was written, it's this concept of what was morally wrong in like the 1920s. It's subjective. It's subjective. Um, I'm also going to go further than that. I think it's racist, sexist, homophobic to the point where I'm going to take a left to go right. I recently reviewed a contract and it specifically said something to do with illegal drugs, right? It was like, you can't do illegal drugs. So I had to, to look at the jurisdiction to see if in reference to this person, 
person if marijuana was illegal in that state, right? Because in some states, marijuana is considered illegal and some states it's not. And it's like, are we really breaking contracts for marijuana? Like, do, do, but do you see how kind of like the minutia of it? Um, also too, you know, arguably there are, there are certain things that in certain states a year ago were legal. The state we're in now, talking in code on purpose, may not be. To me, you shouldn't police people's lives, right? Now, I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth because I would be remiss not to. I understand why the studios do it. It's because they invest so much money on the image of a pretend image of something, of someone, right? And previously, that image was controlled by Hollywood, right? And that's why in the 1920s and 1930s, actors were literally under contract. So meaning they were on like a salary for the whole year, right? It wasn't like a project per project. The, the studio owned them. They had to check in at a particular time, just like how you used to see the Flintstones like punch in their time clock they used to get, have to get there i think at like seven o'clock something ridiculous that's why last call at um in la is so early last call in la was so early because actors were under contract so they had to regardless of how late late they were out the night before they had to get in so last call has to be earlier because you have to literally be at the studio in the morning fresh face before they had all this you know photoshop and whatever whatever you get where i'm going right and so the the issue is is that because they spend so much money right they want to control you where I think it's getting tricky now is we live in a completely different world where that mask is no longer there, right? Like, like arguably, I think that Hollywood used to control paparazzi, so forth and so on. Now, because you're really telling me that because, you know, I'm on a on a movie that I may, like I post on my social media, Black Lives Matter, that because you dictate that that's in, in breach of the morals clause, that you can breach my contract? Like, I think that's something I think that needs to be explored. The other part is, is that, and I think this is maybe what you may or may not have been commenting to earlier, Howard, is that, you know, I definitely am not necessarily, actually, that's a lie. We need more systems, right? Like we need more inclusive systems. And I do not think that Hollywood as its design was meant to be inclusive. Hollywood was designed to be a particular way. Hollywood was designed to have caricatures, not real characters, right? Like every once in a while, definitely, I think people get it right. Um, But it's not really meant to have people who have real human expressions, real human foibles, real human just brilliance. Um, And so, again, the morals clause is normally a place where it's like, because again, it's subjective. So they can just be like, oh, breaches morals. And it's like, you're like, but what does that mean? Well, it breaches morals in South Dakota. Well, we're in LA. Did you catch it? (laughs) Right? Um, So I'd say the morals clause. um, Try to think what other um, terms that are, because there's tons, but... Any, any come to mind? There's a lot that comes to mind, and we can come back to this, but uh, we're going to take another quick break. Yeah. But before that, we would like to thank our partners that help make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who has been providing filmmaking equipment, training, and services to the film industry, both inside and outside the United States since 1968. M2 Films, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment, marketing, advertising, and commercial projects. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. We are back with Sophia Stanley. I want to talk about you a little bit. And we're talking about contracts. And you mentioned copyright. And I think that's very important. Um, You alluded to earlier, a lot of filmmakers, creatives, they don't know how to protect their art. They don't know how to monetize their art. And I know some; those are two things that are very important to you. So can you expand on really what that means? It's so funny. Yeah, you're right. This is near and dear to my heart. And, and sometimes I think when things are near and dear to your heart, they're actually sometimes hard to explain. So 
let me see if I can do this justice. I think that somehow, and I just went to something the other day and and an attorney who focuses on art law said something similar to this, that I think that because art is so heart-centered that artists somehow view monetizing it as the furthest thing away from their heart. And so because it's so beautiful, they think that putting a price to it cheapens it right? Pun intended. Um, and so because of that, they they kind of don't want to deal with the business because they think that it will, will take away from their art. Um, I think that one of the things that I want to make clear is that, and maybe it's I'm a little bit of a dork, that I kind of very much believe in the whole concept of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that um, if your basic needs aren't taken care of, it's hard for you to be enlightened, right? And I think that art lives in that space of enlightenment. I think that there are unique outliers. Um, I think that I'm probably part of a community that that is part of this outlier community where I think that in the midst of like horrible things and, and not necessarily being safe, that we produce beautiful things. But I think no one's asked like, well, if we were actually safe, how much more beautiful of art could we create? Right. You know, um, I'm kind of thinking about Bob Marley and, and, and how he grew up. Think if he wasn't in the midst of oppression and being hungry and those types of things, right? Like think about if, and yeah, some people, you know, even hip hop, let's think about hip hop and, and where, where so many individuals who came from hip hop, the situations that they were raised in. And I know some people would be like, okay, well then they wouldn't be able to talk about the art form, right? But no, because again, look at someone like Jay-Z and look at how he's been able to evolve his empire, right? In a way where now you're creating art from this, this ethereal place because you're just creating it to create it, right? And you're just Letting it out there in, in the zeitgeist, I, I would say that Prince is one of those individuals that I think that was able to do it in a way where he just created from a place of creation, right? And and he, and he didn't care. I think he didn't care because I think it was so grounded. I think I'm veering from your question. Ask your question again, Howard. Sorry. No, you're really not. It's it's about protecting and, and monetizing our art. And I think, you know, especially independent filmmakers. I mean, independent filmmakers, a lot of them is like, I just want to make or raise enough money to make my next film. They submit their films to film festivals and that, but there's not a lot of money to be made in a majority of independent films unless you get lightning in a bottle like a mariachi, like uh, Steven Soderbergh so, back then. So so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two things at once. I'm going to go left and then go right. So I think that what we need to do, and I think what the beautiful space that we're in now is because we're in a digital revolution, there are so many more options. So for instance, I first knew about Ava DuVernay because I was on YouTube and I must have probably been like searching for fashion content. And Miu Miu a couple years ago, could have been like a decade, maybe 15 years ago, a while ago, basically they did a, um, basically a series of short commercials, but they were like basically short films. I think they were between like five and 10 minutes. And basically what it was is it was, they selected basically like um, a variety of different female directors to basically do short films around the whatever, I guess, like the fall or the spring collection. I would encourage people like literally just type in Ava DuVernay Miu Miu. It, and it stars Gabrielle Union. It's absolutely beautiful. The reason I use that as an example is, is that I think that there is space to be more creative with your art, right? So instead of selling the thing you love to make money, use your craft in a slightly ancillary way to make money to fund the thing that you love 
right? So think about it. These brands, everyone right now, content is is like what everyone's talking about, right? Like content creation, content creation, content creation. So think if you, you know, I think I, I, I love authenticity. So like if there's a brand that you happen to love, so let's say you're, you know, you love like Supreme or you love, you know, Off-White. Imagine that you did like a short teaser of like a three minute movie, but inspired by Off-White. And you sent it to them, right? And then all of a sudden they picked you up. And so the reason I say that is there's a way to monetize, right? Because now you're dealing with like a big corporate brand and you're making content for their product, right? Which now can give you money. So now your actual, the thing that you love, that's funding it, right? But is there a risk to that with the company saying, hey, you know, you can't, use our product or do this in a, in a movie, in a, in a film or a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. This is the only thing is, is that not when you're basically trying to do it directly to them. So for instance, I can't remember his name, but basically he created like, um, he created like a spoof of, um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then literally got hired on the new Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Right. So someone could have said same thing. Someone could have been like, oh, that's copyright infringement, so forth and so on. The difference is now he was a little bit tricky because I think he put it on YouTube. That's a little bit different. But I'm saying you go, you send it directly to the brand. Right. Because basically it's, it's your own reel. It's your own way of potentially getting an investor that, again, is not connected to the thing you actually love. So that's just like a one off example. I would also say this is a hard one. I understand the desire to, to have to pay rent, but I think that you have to look at everything you create as having value. Right. And so I think that when you start to think of it as having value, you also have to say to yourself, there's money out there. One of the things that I've been talking about lately, and I'm going to go a little hooey, so I apologize. I believe like we're in a different age now. Right. So again, I'm a little bit this person. And so we're in the age of Aquarius. And so the age of Aquarius is literally the age of the creative. Right. And so there is an end of an age and there's a beginning of an age. And we're at the beginning of a new age. The reason I say that is part of this shift is this concept of moving from scarcity to abundance. Right. Because, again, for the first time in history, you theoretically, as long as you own a cell phone, you can make a movie. Right. So you're so technically you're you have no barrier to entry other than the cost of the cell phone that you already have. Did you catch it for the first time in history? There is no cost of entry to actually make a film because we all and again, the only barrier is obviously if you have a cell phone. But as long as you have a cell phone, which not everybody, but a majority of people already have, you can make a movie. The reason I say that is if you start thinking about it that way, and you start thinking to yourself, OK, I've already made a movie right now. It's a matter of, OK, cool. How do I monetize it? But I have to think abundance. And then again, because of this, this thing called a cell phone, it changes your audience. Your audience is no longer your neighbor next door. Your audience could be on the other side of the globe because there should be a common interest. Right. So I think, Howard, part of the reason that we connected is that we share a love of Star Wars. Right. Because I think that is that is right. That is endemic to just who I am and and my philosophy in terms of life. So, again, if I was going to make something Star Wars esque, right, the first thing I would start to do is, am I on Star Wars Reddit pages? Are my right? Do you know what I mean? Am I part of the community? Right. Because that community is more likely to like content that is Star Wars inspired. Right. So that so meaning even, for instance, am I sharing clips with them? Am I sharing trailers with them? Because that's almost not only your built in audience, that's your built in audience, that's your built in street team in terms of marketing. And arguably within that demographic, there could be someone who loves your content. So another great um, tidbit. And I, I don't know why I'm blanking on her name, but hopefully it will come to me as, as we're talking. But the writer of Hair Love which is an animated short that won the Oscar, literally 
when he, um, I'm not sure if he had already done it, but basically like he sent a tweet, like he basically sent a tweet, like kind of was like, this is my idea. And was like, it would be great if this was a movie. And literally one of the executives at Sony Pictures Animation responded to the tweet and the movie got made. Right. And the reason I'm saying that is, again, this digital revolution is changing your how you have access to people. Theoretically, you have access to anyone that is online. Sometimes I say to people, oh, you know, have you sent someone a LinkedIn message? No, they're never going to answer. Well, how do you know? Right. Like you theoretically, right. Anyone who has any kind of a digital presence you can get to. And so the reason I say that is, again, know that your thing has value. Right. Know the mechanisms of distribution, but then also to get creative. Right. Like like get creative and start to think to yourself, okay. How much money do I need to do this? And like, and okay, and once you think of that number, start to think to yourself, okay, cool. Then how many people is that? Like, sometimes it's actually way less than you think. It's it's that you're cutting out the middle person, right? Like, sometimes going the studio route is actually the problem when it's literally like, do you have a friend who has an independent cinema? Like, right, like do you know I mean like sometimes people aren't thinking that because imagine just like if you made something right on your phone. I'm a droid, so that's why I'm not saying the other thing. I'm being funny. So if you make it on your Android or on your iPhone, right? If you make a movie on your iPhone and then literally independent, you know, theater, let's say only has 50 seats, I bet you could fill it with 50 of your friends, right? 50 of your friends, family members. And then again, whatever the nature is of the content. So what I realize is, do you know how few people like reach out to to people? So for instance, I'm going to make it up. Um, this is actually true. So when I moved to LA, um, I wanted to literally like, uh, I thought I was going to be a partner at a law firm again, LA Law. Um, and I thought I was going to like wake up early in the morning, live in Malibu and like surf in the morning. That was like my whole life. I thought I was going to be, no, seriously, I thought I was going to be married to a beautiful chocolate dread who literally also surfed and we'd have little surfer babies with dreadlocks that didn't happen, but maybe I'll write a movie. So the reason that I mentioned that though, is I know someone years ago who made a surfer movie, but didn't contact surfer, surfer associations. Like what, what, what are you doing? Do you, do you get where I'm going with this? Because it's like, again, you're promoting the sport. You're promoting the art. Like, like it's an art, like it is just such a beautiful thing. And so the reason I say that is, is again, start to think about your monetization way more creatively again. Right. So who are your people? Because again, the ability to get to 5,000 people now digitally is so much easier than 5,000 people like in person. Do you know what you're saying? And do you know where it should live? Right. And so I think that what that allows is it allows Again, within, I think, these, what I consider to be these subset niche micro communities, there's usually someone like a Howard. There's someone like a Sophia, right, who who has access, who's literally like, oh, you need $50,000? There's this competition coming up. Oh, you need $50,000? Oh, did you know that you can do X, right? Like, because, because now we have a commonality of the story. But again, you have to start with the fact that your story has value. And then I think also, too, the only other thing that I would advise people is make sure that depending upon on what you want, you're presenting it in a way that someone else is going to care. So again, I said, you know, you know, slide into people's Instagrams, LinkedIn, so forth and so on. But like, but make it worthwhile. Right. So the number of times where people are like, hey, Sophie, I'm a filmmaker. Like, can you give me pointers on X, Y and Z versus, hey, Sophie, here's a link to my reel. Here's a link to do you see where I'm going? So that literally even also too, someone I the other day sent me something and it like I don't know what type of tech they had, but it's like it just opened up automatically. Does it make sense? Started playing and, and, and it was just dynamic because that person I'm more likely 
to interface with because I didn't have to work to find their work, right? I didn't have to work to find who they are, right? And and so I say be creative. To your point, I often, when I'm creating stuff, I keep asking myself the so what question or when you reach out to somebody like just so what? So what? And, is that, and it's, it's important. And if you ask yourself so what five times, you'll see the change in that. But uh, two quick things. Yeah. I just want to do a quick squirrel. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the age of Aquarius. Yes. Um, yeah. We're recording this. Uh, right after the untimely death of Treat Williams, who starred in Hair in 1979, that that song is from. So just want to send condolences, thoughts, and prayers to his family and loved ones. And I also want to go back to originally talk about how important it is to have an attorney, to have someone look at that. But to your point, what can an independent filmmaker, independent artist do when they have no money, but they need assistance from, from a lawyer, someone to look at? things or to help them. No, totally. Um, so depending upon where you live, um, most major law schools have what's called clinical programs. And so really what that is, is it's like, um, it will almost be like a mini law firm in, in the law school. And so the lawyers in this instance are students, right? So they're not technically lawyers, but they're supervised by a lawyer. Right. So I think the, a similar analogy is if anyone's ever gone to um, like a dental college to get their teeth done. Right. So it's, it's normally like a way lesser cost, but they're still, you know, almost like almost about to graduate. Um, so I would encourage everyone that, again, depending on what city you live in, but specifically if you're in New York, um, New York, Chicago, L.A., definitely anywhere in California, I'm Atlanta, I'm not quite sure. I would say now, I mean, Atlanta is now a booming entertainment economy. So I presume that their law schools must like have an entertainment program. But I would say that would almost be like my my first stop. Right. And yeah. And it's funny. I have to um, I think um, your listeners don't know. So I recently moved from Hollywood West to Hollywood East. So I need to do a little bit of research in terms of Hollywood East, the, the law schools here to see if they have um, entertainment clinical programs. But that's my my would say start there. Right. Start there. Um, and also, too, in general, if there's a, a law school, just start there in general. Right. It's it's usually a, a, a low cost way because start there. They're more, more likely to be responsive. Right. Say I'm an independent filmmaker. Um, uh, I would love um, um, some assistance in reviewing some contracts. They're either going to say to you, um, hey, we have a clinical program. Usually then that's free. Like it's 100 percent free. Or they're also, again, locally more likely to know of other nonprofit organizations, right, that are comprised of entertainment attorneys that either either give low cost or free review of contracts. So, again, that's usually your best but bet. Go directly to schools and let's go to, directly to law schools. I would say the other the other thing to do. Hmm, this one's a little tricky. Hmm. I'm going to I'm going to kind of not answer it to hopefully answer it. Um, I would say the first thing is. Stop being intimidated by lawyers. Right. Like we're just normal people. The reason we're so scary. Is we're actually more insecure than people think. Right. Like most people who overly rely on their intelligence and overly rely on words that other people can't understand and don't necessarily meet you where you're at, there's a little bit of insecurity there. I think I'm going to get slack for that, but that's just my own personal take. Um, 
So if you kind of go into it knowing that, you also, I think, be creative, right? And be be like creative centered in your approach, like kind of go that human approach, right? And figure out, um, so I would say like use things like LinkedIn, right? But use it in a way that there's some commonality, right? So again, I, you know, if you catch it, I, I, I write, I've started to write recently, you catch it, you'll notice that I'm into Star Wars. Like you'll, 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 you'll catch the sci-fi angle if you, so if you were looking for entertainment attorneys, right, my name would probably come up depending on what location you're looking at, right? Now, I would say if you're going to do that, if someone has written articles, read those articles, right? To know like, does she sound like someone I would get along with, right? Because legal counsel, it's a relationship. So, but again, I would say use all of these tools, like use LinkedIn, right? For your, for your location, type in entertainment attorney or, you know, music law, um, film law, whatever the iteration is, art law, so forth and so on. Then take some time and like, yeah, look through the profiles, right? Like look through the profiles. Is there a commonality? You know, did we, you know, I have something that I wrote about that. And I always mention to people that I'm Jamaican, right? So if you're also Jamaican or you're from the Caribbean, whatever, you know what I mean? When you send me a message, say, I loved how you talked about never feeling like you're at home because you're Jamaican, but you're born in London, but you were raised here in America, right? Because now I know you read my article, right? I mean, who doesn't love flattery, right? And so then I'm more likely then if you're like, hey, you know, I um, have a couple of questions, I'm more likely to give you a a free 20 minute consultation because you stroked my ego. But do you see where I'm going with that? Um, The other thing too is, If in any way anyone in your family is either an attorney, but not entertainment or a highly like your most successful business person in your family, right? Ask them because they're going to know an attorney. You're almost going to keep doing leapfrog, right? So you're going to keep keep asking, right? Until you get to an entertainment attorney. The reason that I think an entertainment attorney is is important versus just an attorney. It is a specialized field. The other part that I would say is, hmm, this is a tricky one. Again, it's a relationship, right? So if you if if you don't feel that the person's listening to you, just keep leapfrogging, right? Because again, this is you're you're a creative and 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 what you what you have created, what you are creating is it's special and it's and it's lovely and it's unique. And if we didn't have art, like we would we would cease to exist. Like life would not be worth living. Like it it's literally creativity is our heartbeat right it's how it's our it's how our heart expresses itself and so i say that to say is if you walk into it with that posture keep leapfrogging until in an ideal world you find a lawyer who shares that heart posture as it relates to your creativity and i think then the process will be easy we are going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back to conclude this episode if you enjoy listening to our podcast please support us by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating Then you can head over to our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. I 
I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with Sophia Stanley. So you've left Hollywood, California. You've come to Hollywood, Florida. What are you working on? What's in your future? That is an excellent question. Um, So if I give you this answer, it would not be a great answer. I have absolutely no idea. Um, World is wide open. Right? Um, So I had, just to give the listener some context... I moved here again. I think you guys can tell I'm a little bit this person, but I moved here uh, because I went on vacation and I had a conversation with God and God told me that I needed to talk to him every day and look at a different ocean. And the reason I think this is important is because I used to live in LA. There's the Pacific. And in LA, the water's on the wrong side. I, com- I completely agree. Um, so I actually came here uh, to Hollywood East for two weeks just to clear my head. It's now been two years. Um, And so part of I thought what that stillness was meant to do is I was over the law. I was over entertainment. Um, Now what I realize is I was over the business of entertainment as it's been done in L.A. And I say that on purpose. Has it been done in L.A.? Um, What I realize is moving here to a new coast and to a new area, I definitely think, you know, if anyone has not been specifically to Miami or Fort Lauderdale recently, there's something going on here. There is a creative energy that I was surprised about, but there was a creative energy that it's like it gave me this warm hug that I didn't know that I needed. It very much reminded me of why I wanted to be an entertainment attorney to begin with. There was just like a, a raw, honest, authentic, beautiful creativity going on here. Um, and so, you know, it's almost like, you know, whatever it's like when I try to leave, they pull me back in, like, you know what I mean? Like, so, so there's that, I definitely, um, am, am really excited in this new chapter, um, to, to really the, but instead of kind of, I think where before I would say that I was a traditional entertainment attorney. Now I'm looking to collaborate with creatives, right. To really consult, to really, create a space where we can just have a conversation. Like, let's just have a conversation of what you're doing. Don't come to me just because I'm an entertainment attorney. Come to me because I'm a lover of art. Um, And we can sit and figure out, you know, how I can help you do what you do in the broadest standpoint of the, of the word. Um, And, and so again, that's kind of what I'm, I'm working on from, from the, from the creative standpoint in terms of the law. Um, again, it's kind of, I call it redefining Esquire. If you, if you look up the word Esquire, um, it's traditionally used for a lawyer, but it's also used for a poet and an artist. Um, and I think that part of the reason that I'm trying to sit in a season of stillness is that everyone always asks me if I'm a creative and I usually say no. And I think that's a cop out that's, um, that's again using this perception of my intelligence to not allow me to be vulnerable, to share some things that are really near and dear to my heart regarding belonging, insecurity. Um, I was diagnosed late with HD, ADHD. Um, and yeah. And um, one of the things that I think that I've been exploring is not holding myself back. Right. Like there's a, there's a, you know, free flow, just be myself, right? Like I think I spent so much of my life containing that and then wondering my, why my life wasn't going how I thought it would go. And I realized like, oh, it's because I wasn't being authentic and I am, am trying to walk in a season. Um, I say something where it's like, you know, I'm trying to walk through fear with courage and truly be my authentic self and letting it land as it lands, right? Like not being 
attached to the outcome of belonging is that as long as I know that I'm me, that's the only belonging that I, that I kind of require. So being your authentic self, and you've also mentioned things like collaborating, conversations. Um, you've also said transparency is the new currency. Oof, yes. What do you mean by that? So transparency is the new currency specifically in the age of information. So as it relates to the law, it relates to not gatekeeping, right? That because of this digital medium, because of this cell phone, I never want to advise you or have the other person on the other side a year from now, two years from now, think that they got screwed. So it means let's just be transparent. So if we're working on a deal and there's $50,000, say there's $50,000. Let's stop this kind of like pretending and right? Like let's just actually sit at a table, very clearly articulate what we want, what's on our heart, and like let's meet heart to heart. And then we monetize. Right. So transparency is the new currency. It's really a matter of I really believe that if if we're going to really shift in the age of Aquarius and we're really going to to value creatives. And again, for me, a creative is anyone who creates anything. You create content, you create a film, you create a book, you create a vibe, you create energy like you're creative. It means that we have to create space to be brave enough to be seen. And, and so I think transparency is a new currency is that I think that more and more consumers are actually looking for that. More and more consumers are looking for people who either look like them or feel like them, right? And so it's something that I've written about. It's going to sound um, weird, but um, I'm weird. I used to always wonder why I was drawn to certain people, right? Like I always feel like I'm always with the outcasts. Now, I like to think of us not just as outcasts, but I also like to think of us as, as outliers, right? And I think whenever you you are counter to the middle, you're ahead of the of the curve, right? And when you're ahead of the curve, people don't understand you. But I think there are now more of those people or... I think that, again, because of this digital medium, we're able to find each other. And I think that instead of trying to fit in where we don't fit in, I think we're now creating space where I don't need you to fit in. I just need you to be. And so I think that's for me where transparency is the new currency is I I really believe in this digital revolution that we can find each other based on authenticity and not based on this artificial thing that's being sold to us, or at least there's an option. And I think you know, with everything you're saying, I picture a Venn diagram of transparency, contracts, and channels, and in the middle is the talent. And you know, I know we're talking big, ho- big Hollywood, but brilliant. You know how the streamers have impacted, you know, versus theater. The Scarlett Johansson case was obviously a watershed moment. Mm-hmm. Do you think? that the studio tried to pull one over on her? Is that a trick question? Or let me rephrase that. We all know the studio tried to pull one over. Yeah, did her lawyer miss? This is where it gets really tricky. This is where it's a hard one. Let's pretend this is a movie, just because also too, I don't want anyone to come for me, but I want to be honest. Mm -hmm. Catch it. So we're going to pretend like this is actually a movie and not real life. What I've also realized is that too many lawyers are also part of the system. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Literally. Literally, and also too, they're holding up the same paradigm, right? And and that's the problem is just because they're her lawyer, whose lawyer are they really, right? Because who are who? If tomorrow now their client is the studio, do you see where I'm going? Like to to me, if anyone actually, 
you know, wanted to do an expose. It's that there's a whole legal theory called the conflict of interest. The entire Hollywood legal system is in in is an inherent conflict, conflict, of conflict of interest. Of interest. Is a theory and not, and not an actual thing. Well, yeah. Not an actual thing. No, completely, completely. Um, yeah, but but I think that I think yeah, there's a hundred percent new. There's new avenues. There's new streams, pun intended. There, there's just a new way. And I think also, too, I think that and again, I'm, I'm not saying this to negate the system and the system isn't necessarily um, conducive to talent, but I'm saying that we can create new systems. Right. Like in the same way that also, too, you know, there was a time when there wasn't a Hollywood, California, but movies were being made. Then then there was a time where there wasn't and Atlanta, right? And movies were being made. Also too, I think sometimes we also too have a have a bad habit of of only thinking about film and content and creativity from a from an American lens, mm-hmm. right? There's Bollywood, there's Nollywood, right? And I'm speaking specifically to a certain demographic, like there was what, 52, 54 countries on the continent of Africa? Mm-hmm. Did you right? Like right, India has a billion people. So a, a billion Right. Um, I just learned something. Um, I just was an MC um, at a festival. It was called Future Fest and it was honoring uh, innovative women of color. And I did not realize I knew the numbers were large, but I didn't know it was this large. There are 100 million black people in Brazil. That means there are more black people in Brazil than there are in the U.S., Right. But when we think is and this is important to me. So when we think of, let's say, content, especially black content, we have a tendency to always think American content. Right. But we're not thinking globally. So I would say in general, for any creative of any color, any designation, are you thinking globally? Right. And the reason being is, again, I'm going to keep going back to this. We are in a technological age. Use technology to connect to people's hearts, regardless of where they are. So that means you could potentially distribute somewhere you've never even been before. Mm-hmm. How amazing is that, right? Um, so I think you asked me also too, what else am I doing? Um, so again, I'm looking at the, I'm talking to God, look at the ocean. I talk to the moon a lot. Um, I don't care, if, I don't know if anyone cares. I'm very much into like the new moon and the full moon and all that kind of stuff like that. Um, I'm also really, really, really passionate about um, like investing. So um, one of the things that I am working on, but I can't share a lot about it, but I'm working on a uh, on a project that is actually more like in the beauty space. Um, and ideally, I'm going to say this, kind of hold myself accountable, and I'm also kind of slightly talking to God. Um, I think it's going to be revolutionary, and I'm hoping to launch it next year and possibly in about four years, um, possibly in about four years, sell it for a lot of money. And the reason being is, is that I, I don't know people who have a shortage of ideas. I don't know people who have a sh- shortage of work ethic. I don't have a, I don't know people who have a shortage of heart, but I know people who have a shortage of resources, specifically financial resources. And so I would love for there to be more people like myself who have access to a lot of money. And I think that oftentimes what I found with a lot of funders or investors that, you know what I mean? They were able to create something, sell it for a lot of money. And and arguably it's not fair, but people are more likely to give someone who already has money, money. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my hope is, is to, to create something amazing, sell it, but knowing my rights and still having back end. Hello 
contracts and ownership of the thing that you created. Um, and then really start investing and investing in, in, in again, the, what I consider to be the creative space in the broadest standpoint of the word. Um, also, too, um, prior to moving to Hollywood East um, on the other coast, I used to to have a podcast. Definitely, Howard, thank you for this. I forgot how much I love um, talking to a microphone. It is like there's like a space that's created. There's like an energy. And I, I, I did not realize how much I missed it. So thank you very much. Um, you. Yeah. So definitely want to get back into podcasting. Um, uh, like I said, I just emceed um, an absolutely amazing um, a space to honor women. Definitely want to do more of that. Um, and then one of the things I'm really, really proud of is um, the American Advertising Federation, Fort Lauderdale, um, uh, uh, Broward and Palm Beach. Um, has that chapter has the first film committee so of all of the chapters of the american advertising federation broward and palm beach is the first to have a film committee and i think a lot of people don't recognize i think if you're uh if you're outside of the entertainment world that entertainment and advertising have always been there's always been a synchronicity that a lot of people don't realize that a lot of movies and tv shows tv shows back in the day would let's say be like there would only be one sponsor Right. And let's say the sponsor would be the refrigerator. So the reason that you have a family and a mom at the home opening the refrigerator is because the entire it was the first product placement before we even knew what product placement was. So it's always been collaborative. It's always been the best way, I think, to 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 advertise is to tell a story. Yeah. Right. Where there's a difference between selling is one thing that's I mean, anyone can do that. But to tell a story that connects you, that's why, you know, we're so connected to certain brands. Right. It, 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 there's a heart posture to it. That's why when we see, you know, there's the difference between the Nike swoosh, but there's difference between the Jordan, right? You literally feel something when you see that, right? Um, so I'm really excited about that, that we just launched that, um, the the film committee, and I'm definitely a part of that. Um, I really, I really want to see all of Southern Florida. I, I want there to be a resurgence of this as a place where we tell stories, make stories, distribute stories, that we can see stories, um, that we're Hollywood East, Um I want us to be able to do it also too in a way that is way more inclusive um, on every strata. I want us to learn from the mistakes that Hollywood has has done. Um, I want more people to have a seat at the table on all aspects. So from executives, from talent, um, from crew, you know, one of the things that I love to talk about is I think that, um, you know, a lot of kids don't think like, okay, I could be a boom mic operator, right? Like there's so many professions, right? And that's the person who holds the microphone, right? Which again, just look up how much money they make and you're going to be blown away. And, and so I say, you know, kind of expanding people's minds in terms of that. Um, also, too, I think I'm forget Oh, something I'm very um, uh, passionate about, again, kind of like making people dream more or are broadening their concept of what's possible. So um, like I said, oftentimes, you know, I want to give up on being a lawyer. But one of the things that I'm extremely proud of is I am the legal advisor for the Brock Foundation and the Brock Foundation, we um, uh, teach primarily, I mean, we do a lot of things, but the thing that I think I'm most proud of is um, we teach black and brown kids to fly planes. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of black and brown children don't even know that aviation is a possibility. Um, right now there's actually a shortage of pilots. Um, so I think we're doing two things at once. We're, we're literally telling kids that they can fly. Like how cool is that? Right? Like we all close our eyes at night and we dream that we can fly, but imagine if you actually can. Um, and then also too, that it's a, it's a profession and it's a profession that is, 
not only very lucrative and very respected, but again, there's a shortage of pilots right now. So part of what the Brock Foundation we are doing is we are literally uh, not only inspiring kids to want to be in aviation, but we're teaching them to fly, get their pilot private pilot license. Um, we have actually a partnership with a high school we're very proud of. Um, and then, you know, they can either go directly to college. Um, they could go on to commercial, military, whatever, you know, space. I was going to ask the veteran in me is asking if, uh, you know, you're working with them, helping them navigate the process of uh, the service academies. Yes. yes. No. And, and yeah. And it's ironic that you say that. So our pilot program, pun intended. So I mean, pilot I is in first, not pilot in terms the of pilot, pilot. Yes. Um, was um, specifically with ROTC. So that was, you know, that's kind of the, the foundation of it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just extremely proud of that. Um, uh, the the founder um, and the CEO, his name is Omar Brock. He's just absolutely exceptional. Um, he started off um, as a flight attendant. And then did went through the um, a pilot training program um, and is now a pilot and, and literally, you know, when the whole concept like uh, be the change that you want to see in the world. And that's what he did. And, and I'm just really honored um, that he saw fit to ask me to be his legal advisor. Um, so I'm really, really proud about that. Um, yeah, I, I'm just I'm just in a space of really leaning into my creativity. I'm going to listen to this back about the Venn diagram. And we're going to have to talk because that was just absolutely brilliant. Um but yeah, just really, really trying to um, lean into the space of, I think that where I used to be in my life, it was a lot about like, I wanted to be a partner at a law firm. I wanted to do this. I wanted to make a lot of money. I still want to make a lot of money. Let me just be clear about that. Um, but it really is this concept of, um, I kind of have another thing that I always say to myself, wellness over everything, mm-hmm. right? Um, and for that, that means like, do I feel good? Right. Like, am I centered? Um, And have I created a space for myself where I'm really just doing what I want? And and I'm I I feel really, really um, honored and privileged to be in a season of my life where like even just how I got to meet you, it's because I'm walking in exactly what I want to do. And it's funny because I used to hate this when people say this, but because they're like, oh, follow your heart and the money will ha- will follow. Like, and I was like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but I now, again, I think it does as long as, as you, 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 you know that that is true and you look for those answers, right? Yep. So it's totally true. Like you can, again, transparency is a new currency, yep. you know, as long as you are transparent about what you need. And I think that's also too what I would um, uh, encourage any of your listeners to, to do. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Right. Because I think that we we sometimes live in a society where we're all supposed to walk around like we already have it figured out. It's like that doesn't even like that's not, that's not even cool anymore. Sorry. Like I say all the time. I don't know. Like I'll be like, what is that? Right. Like I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. I'll be like, oh, is, what's what kind of camera is that? Like, how do you make it? How do you make it like adjust? How do you do? Right. Like ask questions. Say you don't know because there's someone in the room that can only answer your question because you ask it. Right. And then I think the only other thing, too, is I really, I really, really, really want to just, I think, if I could just leave everyone with something, is like I said earlier, I personally really believe we're in a different time. And I would implore anyone who's listening who, like, either feels or has felt like they don't belong that when they were their authentic self, it wasn't received by anyone, including like your family. I'm telling you, we are in a different time. And like everything in my spirit is telling me, we just need to be brave enough to be ourselves one more time because 
we can see each other now. Yep. Right. And I think that there are now enough of us in positions, right? Like I always tell people, and this is going to sound dorky, but again, I think you guys have gotten to know me. Um, I'm not cool. I'm cool adjacent. Right. Mm -hmm. But because I'm an entertainment attorney and because of where I used to live, I have the perception of cool. Right. So I use that perception of cool for good and not for evil. It's, it's not who you are. It's who people think you are. It's right. But I use it on purpose to make sure that I am always inclusive, that I'm always kind, that I'm always nice. So that if I'm, if I'm out and I'm networking, am I making sure that we're creating an opening, not a closing, right? Like with your physical body. And so the reason I say that is there are more people like me looking for people like you. We're looking, we're looking to bring you in. We're looking because we, we may have just gotten in the room before you. So trust and believe like we, we have you. And so know that, that regardless that some of us may look like corporate suits, but we're not, I just like suits and I like dressing a particular way. Um, but yeah, I just encourage people. I definitely think we're in an era of being oneself. And I think that to your Venn diagram, I think that you can be your authentic creative self and monetize it in a way that is organic to who you are. Um, Cause I, I believe that we're all entitled to happily, happily ever after. That's awesome. Last question, and very important, where can our listeners find you on social media or learn more about you or get in touch? Ooh, that is a good one. That's why we say the best for last. That is a good one. That is a good one. I know, and it's so funny because the little the little um, OCD in me was like, I, you were supposed to have your website up, but it's not up yet. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's inside my head. Um, so on Instagram, it is uh, at the Sophia Stanley, and that's Sophia with an F. So that's S-O-F as in fine. <laughs> I-A Stanley, or like Sophia Vergara. Um, so again, it's with an F. So at the Sophia Stanley. Um, but arguably for this audience, I would say find me on LinkedIn. Um, again, just literally type in Sophia Stanley. I would say, I'm trying to think what's the best way. Type in Sophia Stanley and then type in like podcaster or Sophia Stanley. I'm trying to think. I think I'm the only one. This is going to sound corny. I think I'm the only black one, but at least just to give you context, the the picture will have me with a beautiful afro, a beautiful brown skin um, and like a checkered shirt. So that's the best way to find me. But yeah, the best thing to do is to um, reach out to me on LinkedIn um, and definitely also to when you reach out to me, mention that you listen to this podcast, because again, it means that you were actually listening. You were taking notes, but also to I'm I'm definitely 100 percent going to respond because I think that Howard is absolutely amazing to create this space for creative. I appreciate so that. I would definitely not leave I appreciate you on that. And <laughs> I appreciate that. It's also our team. Yeah. yeah. Team Juliet, our producer, Victor, our associate producer, Miguel, our director, Freddie, our executive producer. It's this entire team. We appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for being here. This has been amazing. This has been informative. And this has just been energizing with that. So we would... Uh, we would gladly welcome you back to the podcast in the future for that. And uh, I'm excited to see what, what what's next. I know we, we talk a little bit offline here and there and at events that I'm, you know, AAF, I'm you know, starting to get involved with. So um, we're, I'm going to be keeping tabs on you, making sure that 
the website comes up. Definitely. No, thank you so much. You always need an accountability partner. <laughs> it means you're, you're home. Great. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan with associate producer Victor Ferreira. The executive producer is Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website, www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you could send any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Remember to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and visit our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash store to get your Cinema Pathway gear and follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We hope you will join us for our next episode where we will continue bringing on special guests to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. Lights out.